Welcome to Brandon Avat. Um, we're delighted to be joined by Sam Levens at the University of Haifa, and we're going to be talking about something quite weird and wonderful today. Imagine you have a a a god, the standard god of your regular theism. He's good. He's powerful. He's all knowing. All, all, all of the omnis, omnibenevolent, omnipotent, omnis, omniscient, and he creates a world. And it's really important to him to give his creatures, especially his intelligent creatures, free will. So it's really up to them how they live their lives. Um, but let's assume that this God isn't willing just to stand by and watch us abuse that freedom, at least not, uh, you know, egregiously. So he's not going to watch uh, an adult human being um, abuse some child or some vulnerable person and say, well, I gave them freedom. I, I've got to just watch this happen. No, he, he would intervene because, because uh, he, he's too good, so to speak, to let that happen. But imagine that he wanted, he really wanted us to be completely free, but never to choose bad things. So he wants it to be the case that history is full of only good choices, but each choice was freely, uh, you know, enacted. So he has a clever idea. He says, okay, well, what I'll do is I, I will stand back and I will watch history unfold and I will hold myself back from refraining. And the reason I'm able to bring myself to do this, even though I'm a nice God, is because when we get to the end of history, I'm going to say, cut. I'll say something like, you know, uh, that was a good take. I liked scenes one and five and eight, but because in scenes one, five and eight, all of the human actors chose to do really nice things. But in the other scenes, uh, we chose to do horrible things. And like I said, this God isn't willing uh, to allow those horrible things to stand. But let's imagine he has the power just to delete those scenes. But then you've got a very kind of botched history. You, I can't remember which scenes I said God kept, but you got like scene one and then you, you skip to let's say scene five and then you skip again to scene eight. And history's kind of jolty, but, then, but now we can say nothing bad ever happened. But let's say for, maybe just for aesthetic reasons, uh, God, and God wants history to make sense. He says, okay, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll have a retake of history. We'll start again, but we'll keep constant the scenes I like. And basically, humans will get a chance to reshoot uh, the scenes that they didn't do well. Now, once again, because they've got complete freedom, they may muck things up. Maybe now scenes one, two th and three are great, as well as scene five and eight. But scenes four and six and seven are still uh, contain bad choices with bad things happening and people suffering. So this God, again, he's not willing to stand by. Uh, and allow those uh, those those bad choices and sufferings and evils to remain on the historical record. Um, so he rubs them clean, and uh, he says, "Okay, take two. and and he keeps constant once again. Now all of the scenes where good things have happened and only good things have happened. That's what scenes one, two, three, uh, four, and five, but not six and seven or, or whatever it is. And he just retakes uh, the remainder. And this process can go on and on and on until what you've got is um, um, a, a history in which nothing bad ever happened, no bad choices were ever made, but every choice was completely free. Um, and the question is, this is a thought experiment, the question is how do we know that we're not engaged in some sort of process just like that?
right? How do we know that even though uh, we remember all sorts of bad choices that we made and bad things that have happened and pains and whatever, um, how do we know that we are not partway through some sort of cosmic experiment in which uh, uh, a number of reshoots will guarantee that in the end of in the end of time, so to speak, uh, God will have a history in which free agents always chose wisely and, and morally. Sam, it's a, it's a great solution to the problem of evil. Um, <laughs> it's very clever. It's, it's unique. So the problem of evil, as I understand it, is this. Um, if God exists and God is the theistic God, so God is all good, all knowing and all powerful, then um, there would not be evil in the world. Why? Because God would have the ability, he is all powerful to stop evil. He'd be all knowing, so he'd know that there's evil and he'd be all good. So he'd want to stop that evil from happening. And so there wouldn't be evil and yet there is evil. And so God can't exist, at least in this theistic sense. That's, that's the problem. And your solution solves that problem by saying, oh, well, it may appear that there's evil in the world, but this is just one of those scenes that are going to be edited out later and re yes. refilmed, right? Yes. Um, okay. So once upon a time, um, my gran was dying in hospital. Um, so this, this is a true story. So, so, so my gran was dying and she was in immense pain. And um, I spoke with one of the doctors and I said, look, she's in, she's in agony. Can you not do something? And he said, yeah, we can try and increase the painkillers a bit, but it has all these negative consequences. But don't worry about it. It's okay that she's in pain now because she won't remember any of this later. We find that the elderly later on never remember the pain that they're in when they're in these kind of states. She was in a semi-comatose state. Not a big deal. She won't remember any of this later. So I thought, hold on, hold on. But I'm watching her kick under the covers. I'm watching her writhe in agony. And I'm thinking, does it really matter that later she won't remember this? Isn't the mere fact that it's happening now a problem? Mm -hmm. Now, I wonder in your case, whether you don't have the same problem, right? So it seems like the evil happens, but then you undo it. But it, mm -hmm. it. I don't want to say it did happen because if I say it did happen, you're going to say, no, but it didn't because I removed that past. Mm -hmm. But I want to say that at some point in time, it happens. Yeah. And, and your rewinding doesn't stop that from being the case. Well, you're, you're raising a good question. And, and I, I recognize that this will um, make my solution to the problem of evil uh, look less attractive to some people, but I, I, I think it. I, I, I do think that the problem is um, labouring under uh, uh, some false assumptions, some natural ones. But I'll, I'll try and expose what I take to be the false assumptions behind uh, the problem that you're raising. So we have to re rewind. Is an unfortunate um, uh, idiom to use. We have to rewind here. Uh, I take a step back and ask a, a prior question. And the prior question is what makes past evils evil? They're gone now, right? So there will come a time when your grandma's no longer suffering. And I hope whether she is with us or not, she is no longer suffering, right? So uh, there will come a time where the pain is past pain. But we assume that past pain is still bad, right? <laughs> And then what we need is a kind of um, ontology of the past. And ontology is the study of existence. It's a branch of metaphysics. We need to know like what actually exists now that makes it the case that 
past pain is bad. And actually, some philosophers, in my opinion, will have a slightly difficult time explaining to you what makes the past, what makes bad bad events that are past still bad, right? So there's a group of philosophers called presentists who believe that the past doesn't exist, only the present exists. Now, one problem they have in general is to explain how past tense sentences can be true, right? So what makes it true that we're having this conversation right now is there is a concrete fact, concrete way that space-time is arranged and molecules are arranged that we describe as the occurrence of a conversation. Well, that's in the present. What makes it the case, however, that a dinosaur walked past this location 150 million years ago? Um, the presentist is going to struggle, is it? Because there's the past no longer exists. What makes it the case now? Um, and we feel that there should be something now that makes it the case, right? Because because if the past doesn't exist, the present's all you've got, and the world itself must be what's what makes some descriptions of the past true and some descriptions of the past false, right? So, presentists have a problem. I'm not a presentist. I believe the past, so to speak, is a real place, okay? Um, so I, I don't have, I, I'm not committed to that about the future. Uh, I, I like to think of the future as being completely open. And because it's completely open, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a real sense in which it doesn't yet exist. This, this notion, this, this idea that the past and the present exist, but the future doesn't, it's known as the growing block theory of time, right? So time itself grows. Um, so to speak, over the course of time. Um, some philosophers like me, a little bit uncomfortable saying time grows over the course of time because time is what measures growth, right? I grow over the course of time. My children grow over the course of time. If, if my, my father and my grandmother are anything to go by, I'm gonna shrink over the course of time as well, right? Um, um, time itself, you might think can't grow over the course of time. And philosophers like me talk about this thing called hyper time, which is a very kind of uh, um, complicated sounding word for a new dimension over the course of which time grows. So time grows over the course of this thing called hyper time. However, at any given moment of this thing called hyper time, time has a certain length. And over the course of hyper time, time grows outer edge of this growing block called time is the present and everything inside the block is the past the past's a real place it's just we don't have a time machine so we can't go there and i hate to say it but what makes your grandmother's past suffering such a terrible thing such a terrible blight uh on on the universe is that it's still there and so to speak, if, if you could take a time machine back, you, you would see her still, I hate to say it, but in the pain that you saw her in, it, it didn't go anywhere. It's still there. All that happened is you're now somewhere else in time. You're in the present. Uh, so you don't have to cope with seeing it now, but it's there. It's, the problem of evil is a really, really bad problem because not only is the world currently full of evil that God is just watching, right? It's still there in the past. Um, however, on my view, once it's been rubbed, it's nowhere. So what makes past evils bad is that they're there, forever being replayed. 
um, what I call hyper past evils, right, which are the bad scenes once God has cut them away from history, they are literally nowhere. And therefore, it's a misanalogy to compare the past, even forgotten pain uh, of a human being with the hyper past pains, which are, to use less highfalutin language, something like the past past pains, the, the pains that were in the past before God wiped them away. What I'm not willing to say is what lots of theists are willing to say, that God was happy allowing for um, temporary evils to exist. Because for me, temporary evils still exist. They're just in the past. But hyper-temporary evils are a different matter. And this is what Tyron Goldschmidt and I argued for in our paper, The Promise of a New Past, that it's at least for all we know possible that the, the, the pain and, and suffering and evil that's all around us are merely hyper-temporary events. It will hyper one day be the case once God has finished editing history that, that their, their hyper will have never been any bad. Um, that, that, and you, you won't be able to get into your DeLorean and travel back in time and get out to see any bad things happening. They won't be there, not even in the past. So one way of thinking about the future is that it branches. So yeah. there are all these different possible worlds that um, could be, depending on the choices that we make. And it seems like what you have is a branching theory of the past. Mm -hmm. So what happens is there is a perfect past uh, that that's maybe there's a couple of, you know, um, equally good pasts. Yeah. And God says, well, we're just going to do retakes until we remove the imperfect ones. Yeah. Uh, and then I can make my my perfect book or my perfect film. And yeah. then I erase all the imperfections, yeah. and then we no yeah. longer have the branches. We have yeah. the final product. Yeah. And so, what I wonder about when we think about the sort of classic time traveler case, um, you know, the person says, "I want to go back in time so that I can, uh, you know, shoot Hitler in the head before the Holocaust happens, and I can save yeah. all of those people." You know, one of the objections is it's logically impossible. Yeah because the past is the way the past was. And so you cannot change it. You could be a causal event in the past. In other words, um, the past is the way it was. You could have gone back in time and you could have had an influence as a future mm -hmm. time traveler, but it is the way it is. In the same way, if we think about um, a novel uh, that is in its final form, it is the way that it is. There is mm -hmm. no way that Romeo and Juliet don't die in that particular novel. Mm -hmm. But what you do that's so interesting is you say, well, we're not in a complete novel. We're in the drafting phase. So, exactly. So Shakespeare is busy thinking about the different ways in which this thing could play out. And mm -hmm. you've got these simultaneous unedited drafts sitting around the table. And at mm -hmm. some point in time, there will be the definitive Romeo and Juliet. And all the yeah. other stuff doesn't count. And if yeah. it doesn't count, that's interesting to me. So in some senses, we accept that there's, let's say, a definitive version of a book. Um, mm -hmm. and maybe sometimes you have revised editions of a book and we say, mm -hmm. well, there's two definitive editions of this thing, you know, mm -hmm. and that's okay. But all the other drafts don't count. But when we then make the claim that, well, the Holocaust never happened, um, mm -hmm. because it will be edited out of the future book because God would never allow such a bad thing to, mm -hmm. you sort of become this, uh, 
interesting denier of horrible things. You said, don't worry, none of this stuff counts. It's all temporary. It's all imaginary. Um, and, and I start to wonder about that. Uh, in other words, you're making an interesting metaphysical claim about what counts as reality in the sense that there's all these drafts and because they're immoral, don't have an ontological status. Um, and also there seems to be a kind of denying going on about things that we currently think of are as bad. You said, don't worry, those evils aren't occurring. There are two problems that, um, that regularly arise with theists trying to defend God in the face of the problem of evil. One problem is they, they actually make God out to be not as good as we, we thought he should be. Okay, and and Tyron and I in this paper, the promise of a new past, where we first kind of advanced this uh, this response to the problem of evil, we cite approvingly the atheist philosopher Stephen Mateson in his dismissal of the free will defense. The free will defense says, well. God um, gave us free will. He really values us having free will. And therefore, most of the evil in history, not all of it, but most of the evil in history, or lots of it, lots of human evil, can be explained away in terms of our bad choices rather than God. God gave us free will, and now it's our fault, not God's fault. And um, Stephen Mateson, we think, rightly dismisses that, because what sort of God, as, as, I, as I tried to make clear in, in the thought experiment that I painted at the beginning, what sort of God says, oh, well, you know, I wish I could intervene to save the poor, vulnerable child being abused. But, you know, um, the free will of that abuser is just so important. It, it, you know, so what so one one pitfall of theodicies of defenses of God in the face of the problem of evil is that God is claimed to be all, you know, all loving, all good. But he doesn't really look it. You know, that's a very strange benevolent God uh, uh, is the one described by the free will defense. Another um, pitfall is that they tend to deny the reality of evil. One uh, theodicy that perhaps falls into this pitfall is, is Leibniz, who, who just goes on uh, doggedly insisting that this is the, the, the most perfect of all possible worlds, the world we live in right now. And that either seems like a failure of imagination or, or it seems like like um, the moral failure of somehow belittling the very real evil that's all around us, saying, oh, don't worry, it's this is as good as it gets, guys. Well, hold on a minute, right? doesn't feel as good as it gets. It, it feels like only someone who's dismissive somehow. Tyron and my defense of God in the face of the problem of evil, it, it looks to be denying the reality of, of pain and suffering, the pain and suffering around us. And that's kind of not just... Um, philosophically dubious because i mean we know that this stuff is real this pain and suffering around us it's also also somehow ethically it's like an unethical thing to do even to 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 uh, endorse such a defense if it comes at the expense of denying the reality of the pain and suffering around us uh, so yes i congratulate you for raising a serious problem and and i, I don't take it lightly right so in response to you know, is this God um, really a good God? Well, it, it, it wholly depends on um, whether we can make sense of the claim that at the end of time, there never will have been any evil. And if we can make sense of the claim, then it's not, it, you know, God isn't, isn't allowing temporary pain and suffering 
um, um, as a price worth paying for human freedom. He's allowing what we call hyper-temporary pain and suffering, pain and suffering that one day will never have happened, right? Not just that it will be over one day, it will never have happened one day. He's allowing that as a price for, for, um, for human free will. And I think that God is at least a nicer God than the God of the classical free will defense, if we, if we can make sense of this claim. The, 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 to answer the other side of your problem, but haven't we somehow denied the reality of, uh, of the pain and suffering? Again, I wanna say no. In this moment of hypertime, in this moment of hypertime in which we live, um, the pain and suffering is very real. Not, not only do we have to recognize its hyper-temporary hyper reality, uh, a reality which is hyper-simultaneous with, with our, our current experience, um, it also is going to leave some sort of imprint on the final, on the final history. Um, because another problem you could raise with some theodicies is that they may inspire an attitude known as quietism, right? So one of my heroes, Martin Luther King, in one of his great speeches has this phrase where he tries to inspire the masses to continue on. He says, we'll continue on in the knowledge that unearned suffering is redemptive. Now that's very, th those are very inspiring words, but actually there is a dark underside to them. And the dark underside to them is they could lead some people to almost invite pain and suffering. Well, unearned suffering is redemptive. This is good for us in the end, right? Uh, likewise, my theodicy could lead people to say, well, it doesn't matter however bad we do things, God's going to give us another chance anyway. So I, might, I may as well live a life of, uh, of evil debauchery if it's going to be fun in the, in the interim because, you know, God will give us another chance anyway. And so it's worse than quietism. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it's inviting all sorts of terrible life plans. Well, no, if we if we lead really, really terrible lives, it might be that in the ultimate cut of history, we're not there at all. Right. Because, you know, the only scenes in which we appear might be able to be cut seamlessly from history if everything, if every single thing we do is bad. Um, Moreover, the goods that we do, and this gets into some of the mechanics of the view that I've kind of uh, brushed over because it's more complicated than, than uh, what I've explained thus far. But um, look at history this way. You, you know, Mike Lee, the film director, uh, um, the British film director, he has this cool method. What he does is he gets his actors together, he gives them some ideas, and then he gets them to improvise. And then they improvise again, and then they improvise again, and he takes notes, and he tells them the bits he likes, bits he doesn't like, improvise, 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 and then eventually he actually gets down to write a script. Now, in the end, he writes the script. Nothing makes it into the script that he doesn't want to be there, and some of the stuff that's there wasn't fully improvised. He'll actually have to write certain bits in order to make coherent all of the improvised stuff that he wants to salvage and, and kind of render into a... Uh, you know, a, you know, a coherent storyline. Um, I could imagine uh, God doing a similar thing. Eventually, in order to fit together all the scenes he wants to fit together, he's going to have to kind of write a script. But the script that he writes for the final cut is going to 
is going to somehow take into account uh, all of the improvising that we did in previous cuts. So we kind of want to be careful even now, even in this kind of interim stage, because the things that we do um, will make some sort of impact on the things that will ultimately be done in, in, the, in the final cut. So it's not that anything goes. So, so A, I, I don't undermine the reality of our hypertemporary pain and suffering. It really is happening right now. B, um, I don't give rise to, or I don't legitimize the attitude that says, well, if God's gonna give us subsequent takes, we may as well just do whatever we want this time around. No, because the things we do right now still will have an impact somehow uh, on the final take of history. We're trying to, to push this, this question of whether in this ultimate cut, evil has happened. Yeah. Um, and you're trying to argue that you're trying to argue two things. You're trying to argue both that it has happened in some significant sense, yeah. but not insignificant enough of a yeah. sense yeah. to disprove the existence of God. Yeah. Right. And, and that's very interesting because I I worry that there's there's a fallacy of ambiguity happening here where you're trading on these meanings of happened. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going back to the problem of evil, what does the problem of evil say? It says and um, if God exists, then this would, then evil would not occur. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't say if God exists, then at the end of time, if we look backwards, evil would it not will have, have been the case that nothing bad. Mm. And I, I worry that you, you, you're deliberately responding to a weaker version of the problem of evil when the stronger version remains untouched. That's a nice idea. So, so, what I'd say is that the, the stronger version of the problem, which is kind of, uh, I suppose you could say it's always in the present tense. The stronger version is, why is there evil right now? Why is God allowing there to be evil right now? I suppose that Tyron and I are to some extent satisfied with the free will defense as a response to that problem. What we take Stephen Mateson to have nicely shown is that the free will defense may be okay kinda to, uh, to what you're calling the stronger problem of evil, the problem of evil enunciated uh, or uttered in the present tense, but it leaves over this other problem of evil, which is like at the end of time, we look back, why was it okay that, that, that God kind of stood by and allowed those evils to happen in the name of free will? Um, and, and it's that problem that, so to speak, we answer by saying, well, you know, even that problem is obviated so long as God will one day make it the case that no evil ever happened. The evil that's happening right now is justified in terms of some sort of process, right? And the free will defense uh, says that process is our freedom. And Tyron and I say, well, that's not good enough. Right. Because like no good, no good God would just stand by and allow terrible, terrible evils to happen in the name of the freedom of the perpetrators of those evil. But what if the process isn't hasn't been properly described by the free will defense? What if the process is a process that happens over the course of hyper time, not just over the course of, of history? And, and then we can say, well, um, what justifies the evil right now? is a process that's unfolding, but the process isn't merely a historic process. It's a hyper-historic process. Um, and, if, and if that's what's happening, 
and maybe we have a better answer than the free will uh, defense has. So it's, it's a question of what process justifies uh, or could possibly justify the presence of evil right now. Um, I, I, I'm, pre I'm prepared to agree that you've improved on the free world defense. Oh, that's good. Um, so, okay, we can go yeah. home. That's, yeah, a big, well, that's a well, big deal. No. Well, no, that's, because, that's a big deal. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think that's an accomplishment, and, and I think okay. it's a very, it's a very interesting take that you have. Okay. Um, and I think it's a great virtue that you've, mm -hmm. you've given a strengthened version of the free will defense. But of course, the free will defense doesn't cover all evils. That's right. It only covers evils that are a result of our free will. Mm -hmm. But there's earthquakes, right? And unless you take the view that earthquakes happen because gay people have sex or, you know, some, <laughs> some, some action on behalf yes. of people, yes. you, you, can't, you can't argue that those evils are happening as a result of free will. Um, okay. And so it only resolves one type of free will. And if it does one resolve, it resolves yeah. one type of, you, sorry, one type yeah. of evil. Yes, yeah. it only resolves one type of evil. Yeah. I Well, let me say a couple of things in response to that. First of all, to improve the free will defense would already be good. OK, um, um, I am quite open to the possibility that theism cannot answer the problem of evil with just one um, response. We need to think about different types of evil, different occurrences of evil. Some evils may be um, punishments for sins that people have done. Right. It's just not for me ever to say when. Right. God forbid that, that somebody should have the audacity to say um, this evil happened because of this sin. Who are we to say such things? I, I think, you know, I think it's I think it's a terrible uh, ethical vice and also a theological error uh, to, to make uh, such proclamations. Nonetheless, I'm not I'm not closed off to the possibility that some, you know, maybe some bad things that have happened in my life have been. Um, recompense for bad things I did. I'm not closed off to that possibility. Um, maybe some evils uh, are there to refine uh, uh, the, the, the people that suffer, right? That's called um, um, the Irenaean response to the problem of evil sometimes, right? Uh, uh, after St. Irenaeus, who, who, who believed that, like Martin Luther King said, and maybe he was right for some cases, right? That unearned suffering can be redemptive, that somehow pain and suffering are one of the tools that God uses to sculpt and carve human beings into uh, um, uh, greater versions of themselves. In the Jewish tradition, that's known as Yisurim Shal Ahava, the, the, the pangs of love. Maybe uh, in some cases, the divine intimacy theodicy is correct, that some types of pain and suffering in some, some uh, how or other bring the sufferer closer to God, right? Um, I think that that probably um, the true theodicy will be a mixed bag uh, 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 that bring uh, you know uh, different defenses and theodicies theodicies to explain the occurrence of different historical evils. So if we've improved only the free will defense, which only answers uh, you know that only has the power possibly to answer why some evils occur, that's already a, that's already a good thing for the for, for the theist. Um, however, I could go further and say the free will defense really can't un it really can't explain why um, natural evils occur, earthquakes and, and diseases, viruses and pandemics, right? Uh, can't explain those things easily. 
Uh, although some natural evils are the fault of humans because you qu quite clearly because of uh, climate change and um, you know so not past perhaps not many past natural disasters but we can all foresee god forbid some some horrible uh, natural catastrophes that will be in a sense that the uh, the consequence of bad choices on behalf of uh, of consumers and policymakers um, nonetheless I think that that what Tyler and I call the proofreader, the divine proofreader uh, uh, response to the problem of evil, this response we've been talking about, that kind of casts God in the Mike Lee type uh, uh, director of, a, of an ongoing process, um, it actually can uh, make sense in some way, even if some natural evils. Look, God would be really, really horrible if he said, oh, I'll think I'll throw in an earthquake just to see how people respond, that might shake things up a bit. That would be horrific. Um, but if, so to speak, from God's point of view, that will definitely not make the final cut. But the, the pain and suffering of the earthquake won't. But um, the occurrence of the earthquake might cause act, you know, us human actors to do some things with our freedom that we wouldn't have thought to do otherwise. And maybe those free choices will remain in the final cut, right? It shows you that, that somehow um, our new and improved free will defense, uh, uh, it, it, you know, could even, you know, plausibly somehow explain how some natural evils uh, occur. You know, this God looks really, really terrible now until you recognize um, that God is taking a different kind of temporal perspective. He's already looking, so to speak, at the final cut from which it will be the case uh, that none of these things ever happened. Uh, but, but the goods that came out of them um, uh, might somehow leave uh, a lasting trace on the uh, on the timeline at the end. Gabriel Citron, uh, a friend of mine at Princeton, uh, also a Jewish philosopher, also does philosophy of religion. He wrote a really cool paper where he said something like, for all we know, this whole world could be a dream, right? And it could be a nightmare. And it could be that we'll wake up into a world in which there never was any suffering. Now, in various ways, I take uh, Tyron and my response to be different to uh, to Gabriel's, uh, you know, I, I don't take much religious comfort from the possibility that this entire life might just be a dream. Um, however, I think you could fairly accuse Gabriel and me and Tyron. You could fairly accuse us all of somehow belittling the reality of the pain and suffering. I think Gabriel would want would want to get on board with with what you, Jason, have described as. Uh, um, falling prey to some sort of fallacy of ambiguity or equivocation. But I think Gabriel would want to do the same thing. And he'd want to say, no, we're not denying the reality of the pain and suffering. When you're having a nightmare, it's really horrible. It really, really is. But when you wake up from the nightmare, most of the time, if you ask, yeah, but did you really suffer? You'd, you'd say from your woken up perspective, Oh, no, you know, thank, you know, thank God it was just a dream. I'm not sure that it's, I'm not sure that it's fallacious. You know, um, we really are suffering right now. We really have some terrible choices in our biographies, in our past. But does that mean it will always be the case that we have bad things in our past? 
not necessarily. You know, if, if theism is true, then it strikes me there's a possibility uh, that we are part, that we are midway through this this process that I've described. So imagine this: we have a brilliant director who makes family-friendly films. Every film that you watch, you say, "This is just an incredibly gorgeous piece of art." Um, these people do these compassionate, loving things, and nothing bad ever happens to any of the characters. There's no suffering, there's no pain. It's a perfectly G-rated film, you know. And then we ask, how was this movie made? And it turns out that uh, the director uses this Mike Lee approach, where he says, okay, guys, um, do whatever you like. So chop up some kids, um, we'll put in some from volcanoes, we'll have the earthquakes, we'll have mass slaughter, and then no, I'm just going to chop out all of the stuff that doesn't get the G rating. So what I do is I film the triple X movie um, that could never be screened. It is so horrible, filled with so much evil and pain and suffering and despair but don't worry the final product that we show on disney plus is just beautiful and now i ask we think about the moral assessment of this director and we start to go this person is a monster this person is the epitome of evil the techniques that they've used to create this beautiful product are just beyond the pale and i wonder if that's what your proofreader god is like that's amazing, Mark. <laughs> yeah, Mark, Mark, that's, Mark, that's fabulous. I really, I really, really like that um, uh, objection. Um, it's very strong. There are two, I think there are two important aspects to highlight in response to this, uh, this, this objection. The first is that unlike Mike Lee, right, um, it will always be the case, okay, that Mike Lee put his actors through what they went through. Just because it, just because scenes get cut and it and it makes it to the the cutting room floor, doesn't mean that those actors didn't experience uh, the things they were put through. So if Mike Lee somehow uh, um, ended up with this beautiful G-rated G movie that has you know horrific scenes of brutal torture in, uh, the fact that they're cut from his film doesn't mean they're cut from reality. And that's where the analogy with Mike Ray and our, our, our divine proofread, Mike, sorry, Mike uh, um, Lee and our proofreading God uh, is supposed to come apart. It's supposed to be the case that, and, and we can get into the, 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 the difficult mechanics of it, but, but we, we have a model of hypertime according to which the hyperpast isn't a place. It's called hyperpresentism. Um, just like the presentist thinks that the past isn't a place, and I think the past is a place. Um, the hyperpresentist thinks there's no such place as the hyperpast, and therefore, uh, on this model, and we don't, in, 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 unless you need to to push it further, you know, we we, we needn't get into uh, the, the really difficult metaphysics of it. But a, a consequence of the model that Tyron and I have put forward is that once God cuts a scene from from the past, it is literally nowhere. It it doesn't exist. It can be, to use philosophical terminology, it can be described de dicto. You can describe what happened in it, but you can't even name it. It can't be kind of picked out de ray because it didn't happen. It has gone, right? So, so in answer, so part of my answer, the first part of my answer to your question is the God that, that I'm describing here is importantly unlike Mike Ray because uh, this God can make it the case that those scenes were never even shot. They didn't happen. 
okay? Even though in some weird counterfactual way, they, they do leave an imprint on the content of, uh, of the film that we arrive at. That's the first thing to, to note. The second thing to note is um, we, we judge Mike Ray and the products of his um, filmmaking activities. Uh, I think we should judge him uh, primarily aesthetically. We look, at, we look at the film and we say, is this a good film? Now, we also could judge him morally, you know, like, did, you know, did he, did he engage in, in, in moral um, uh, behavior in the making of it? Now, uh, um, I've defended the God of my picture from the claim of immorality on the basis that from God's perspective, it's gonna be the case that none of this stuff ever happened. Okay, which Mike Ray can't do. That's a trick. Mike, uh, not Mike Ray. Mike Ray's a philosopher at Notre Dame. Mike Lee. Uh, Mike Lee uh, can't do that trick. Uh, can't, Mike Lee can't make it the case that his actors never went through terrible pain and whatever. So I can get perhaps God off a moral hook that you can't get Mike Lee off. But the, the, the other part of my response to you is that importantly, it's not clear to me that we're going to judge uh, God's output using the same criteria that we judge um, Mike Lee's um, output, right? Um, what's going to be important for uh, me when watching the movie isn't whether or not these actors freely chose their lines. Well, you know, that, you know, a lot of people enjoy Mike, Lee, Mike Lee's movies without knowing much about the process behind it. Right. So it's no part necessarily of our evaluation of the aesthetic merit of the film. Uh, were these actors free? Right. Uh, what we will want to know is, is it exciting? Does it have a good plot? Does it kind of, you know, does it move us? Whatever. Does it make a good point? And the question is, how are we going to evaluate God? Uh, you know, what what makes uh, um, this God a good God and his product a good product? And it, I, it's not important to me that history is exciting. Um, it, it, but, but it is important to me that that history is an expression of the free will of the beings that God created. Um, but it's also important to me that um, that God doesn't allow uh, history to contain uh, terrible, you know, gratuitous pain and suffering. Um, so I think once you put those two parts together, first of all, like the analogy only goes so far because um, Mike, Mike Lee can't make things actually disappear and the analogy only goes so far in that ultimately um, God isn't making a film, he's making a universe and therefore you know how we should evaluate his performance so to speak uh, calls on a different system of, of values to how we might evaluate the, the, the product of a, of a director. Okay. I think I have a different problem for you, Sam. Okay. Um, so Mark and I have both pushed so far on this issue of whether evil's really happening. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, if it is, well, then your view is not solving the problem of evil, but you're saying it isn't happening in a strong enough sense that it can't, mm -hmm. uh, it still counts. Uh, you're yeah. not trying to dismiss evil, but it, it, it doesn't count enough to dismiss God. It counts as evil enough that we can say, wow, evil's really bad. But, it doesn't count as evil in such a strong sense that the process in which God is engaged renders him somehow irreparably immoral or something, uh, renders him uh, um, compromised morally. Hmm. Understood. But now here's the problem. 
I can run exactly the same line, but in the wrong direction for your account on freedom. So let's say in any given situation, I choose the bad choice, the wrong choice that results in bad or evil consequences. So I mince up children, right? Um, if I do that, it seems like you're saying that I have freedom to do so, and yet my choice will be removed at a later stage from the, the final edit, right? In a very important sense, in the very same sense that you're using to dismiss the existence of evil in an important sense of the word of ex existence in the final cut, isn't my free will edited out in a very important sense in the final cut? One way in which I could illustrate that you still have a substantial degree of freedom is that the goods that you do in the final cut, even though, even though it's predetermined that you're only going to do good, they're really not of God's authorship. In, in a sense, you know, um, people who believe that the future is open uh, ten, and, and believe that humans have free will, they tend to believe with a group of theologians called open theists, they tend to believe that if God exists, he couldn't know the future. Right? Because if he knew the future already, there would be a strong sense in which the future already exists. And if the future already exists, there'd be a strong sense in which you don't have the power to do otherwise. So there's a group of theists who, who think that God can't know the future. I don't want to take a stance on that. But, let, but for the sake of argument, let's imagine that, that if the future is open and you have real freedom, uh, then God can't know the future. If we assume that for the sake of argument and, and, and think from the point of view of, of my model of time and hypertime, God actually will only know one thing about the end, the, you know, the end biography of Jason, which is that it will only contain good choices. He will have no way of predicting what you're going to do with your life, right? That, that, that indicates to me that in a very strong sense, you have freedom, okay? Um, yes, you don't have the freedom to leave an eternal stain of debauchery on the timeline. You don't have that freedom. God, you know, a good God won't give you that freedom, according to me, right? But does that mean you're not free? Well, you know, if the God of open theism, who is still omniscient, he knows everything po that's possible to know, couldn't predict what your lifeline is going to look like in the end, other than saying it's going to be very nice, uh, strikes me that you've still got freedom in, 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 in a way that's worth fighting for. Does it make sense for us to ask for forgiveness? Um, for the bad things that we do. So if we if we imagine that God has sort of set in place a series of norms, that there's certain things that are wrong to do, um, and we then say, you know, God, I've trespassed, will you forgive me? Is that a, a, a sensible thing to do if really none of the sins are ever going to make a final cut? You don't have much choice about this matter, whether you're free or not, is that um, you're going to be living your life until you die, um, on this, on this take. And even if my theodicy is right, or my defense of, of God is right, and you're going to get another take, it seems in your, in your hyper-temporary, uh, it seems to be in your hyper-temporary practical reason interests to make your life as kind of coherent as it can be to, you know, uh, as, 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 meaningful as it can be, as pleasant perhaps as it can be, certainly as moral as it can be, because the moral things that you do, like I said, uh, um, you know, 
can last into hyper eternity. But moreover, if you've done bad, you know, all the while until the next take, that badness is on your conscience and, and, and therefore asking for forgiveness you know, even if it's only, even if it's only hypertemporary, it strikes me that, that it makes sense to do that. God might even put sinners. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Roman Catholic or anything like that. But, but you know, maybe sinners are going to burn for all eternity, right? In take one. For all I know, that might be a demand of God, of, of justice, right? God puts the sinners in hell forever. And, uh, and, 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 and the, the good people, including the penitent, go to heaven forever. And still there's a second take, right? These, it sounds like a contradictory thing, but, it, but it, it's not. So, so, so it, 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 sounds, it strikes me that it could still very much be in your personal interests also uh, uh, to, 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 to repent if, 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 if the demands of God, you know, divine justice are such that there is a hyper-temporary hell. Um, you, you know, a hypertemporary hell could still last for an eternity, just not a hyper eternity. Um, um, so, so it's, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't strike me that forgiveness makes sense. Also, if you believe, Tyron and I talk about like light editing and heavy editing. The light editing is when there's an easy cut, you know, you can cut out scene two seamlessly and retake it any number of ways. So then you could get, you get to shoot it once, twice, three times. And so some of these edits are going to be much more difficult to make because good and bad choices are sometimes into interwoven with one another and god might want to to save for the final take some good deed that you did mark let's say even though the good de deed you did only really made sense as a response to something terrible that jason had done to you right now um one way that god might be able to save the spirit of the good that you freely did right would be what tyron and i call slightly heavier editing which is where he kind of writes a script for you to, to act this time without freedom. He kind of programs you to say these words, but the script is very much inspired by the good that you did in a different story, but it has to be reset and, and it just can't be done so freely. Now it could be that acts of penitence themselves are just such tremendously virtuous acts that God will have some way of kind of salvaging something of the virtue of those acts in the final in the final script, even if even if uh, it will no longer be repentance, let's say. So Tyron and I have something to say about that that question, and and, and a number of things to say about the question. And I think all of them point in the direction of of um, of, of Mark fasting this Yom Kippur. So um, given that Mark's <laughs> going to fast this Yom Kippur, and he actually will, uh, Mark does fast on Yom Kippur. Um, I I don't, um, oh, okay. but, but but Mark does. Um, I, I have a different problem here. You hyper will. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hyper will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so okay. So let's push this, right? Let's push this. Let's push this case. So I choose not to fast on Yom Kippur this year. Okay. Uh, for any listeners who are, are listening who don't know what Yom Kippur is, it's the Jewish Day of Atonement. Uh, have I translated that correctly? And and it's some people say it's the most religious Jewish holiday. Um, and I haven't fasted on Yom Kippur for a number of years, but I hyper will have um, because God will rewrite until I do. But when he rewrites, I think an evil has occurred because I have made that choice, even if it's a bad choice, which I don't think it is, but let's just assume that it is, that it's the wrong choice. 
in censoring that choice, I think God has committed an evil, even if the action that I've performed is bad. There is something good about allowing us to perform the wrong action, even if it's the wrong action, right? And if you remove not that choice, but you remove a record of that, of having ever happened, it's akin to censorship. So now, you know, pushing the editing, uh, the editing idea, what's effectively happening here is the editor says, ah, oh, you know, the publisher's not going to accept uh, a swearing in this manuscript, so we're going to remove it. And the author says, but hold on, that's inauthentic. That's not what happened. And it seems to me like an evil has occurred when you remove something authentic. Well, first of all, let me address the authenticity issue. It seems to me that that judging it inauthentic to, to remove a record of, of some hyperpast sin potentially falls into the the trap of taking the analogy of a filmmaker too seriously because authenticity it strikes me is one of the the, the values we might use to judge a good movie and 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 whether that's whether that whether the the demand for authenticity applies in exactly the same way to judging whether kind of history is a good history for the universe to have not it's not immediately clear to me that it is. I mean, I, I think there is a value in authenticity outside of movies, but whether in this particular case, uh, what's been lost is anything more than aesthetic, it's not clear to me. I could imagine myself trying to respond to you by saying, um, oh no, but Jason, eating on Yom Kippur is a terrible, terrible evil. Um, and you know, how could you, how could you condemn God for wanting to get rid of that from history? But I'm not gonna say that. Uh, in fact, let me say this. I think you agree with me that it would be a pretty low move for God not to intervene with, with a person abusing a child um, on the grounds that, oh, I don't want to censor things. Shut up, God. Just like, like there are some times where, where, so you have a concern. It seems to me a legitimate concern. I could try and push against it, but it seems to me a legitimate concern. But the concern doesn't apply in all cases, right? It doesn't seem to apply to uh, the case of somebody abusing a child. It might occur to the case of somebody eating on Yom Kippur, right? Uh, um, that, you know, their God shouldn't have intervened. And somehow by intervening, it was like an attack on your freedom. It was, it was that, that nasty of God to do that. Well, maybe that's right. You know, maybe... You know, this now gets out of the out of the realm of uh, general uh, philosophical theology and how how is like the abstract God of Abrahamic religions compatible with the, the existence of evil? And we go right into Jewish philosophy now. And the question is, how do we understand the badness of purely ritual sins like deciding not to eat on a certain day of the year? And it strikes me that like. Um, that those are not in a straightforward sense moral evils, even, even according to, to, to my worldview that, that perhaps um, gives Yom Kippur more metaphysical and theological significance than you would, Jason, right? But I don't think, you know, it, I think it's still consistent with my view that God says, well, look, the only person who was hurt by Jason eating on Yom Kippur really was me, God Almighty, and I can take it. Right. And, you know, so so maybe actually um, 
but maybe this generalizes not just in Judaism to sorts of ritual sins that maybe God will leave on the record because to take them off the record really would be interfering with a person's freedom for an insufficiently good reason right so so we could talk about victimless crimes right maybe God won't interfere with victimless crimes um, but maybe even mild evils right um, it, you know it might there might be a threshold uh, that God would allow but it strikes me that um, in this particular take of history we've gone way beyond any reasonable threshold I don't know where it should be calibrated but Leibniz was not was not right this is not the best history that could have been so it strikes me that what we have is a situation where we've got to work out which bullets are we going to bite so you know we talked about the virtues of your account and that it solves some some of the issues relating to the problem of evil, but it requires you to bite other bullets. And I like this idea that Jason raises is, well, to the extent that God is really a divine censor, you know, we're going to feel some level of discomfort in that regard. You know, the idea that what you really have is this Groundhog Day where you get to lead the, you know, lead whatever life you like, you know, murder and rape as many children as you like, but it doesn't matter because, you know, we're going to just rub out uh, all the bits that aren't uh, G-rated. Um, and so your authentic life, you know, is going to be quashed because we've got the sort of censorship concern. Um, and so it seems like we're going to wind up in some situation, we've got to work out, well, what kind of a what kind of a finished universe do we want to live in? How much freedom are we going to have? How much suffering are we going to have? You know, and that there's some ultimate value judgment about maybe which we can't determine now as to what that best state of affairs would be. And some of it's going to be, do we prioritize freedom? Do we prioritize censorship? Do we prioritize suffering? Do we prioritize, you know, a beautiful product? Um, and so there's going to be some question about which bullets we bite. You know, Thomas Sowell sort of says that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And it might be that there is no way that you can get to a perfect answer um, because you're dealing with something nebulous like value uh, and that you could never come up with an answer where everyone says, ah, that's it, you've solved the problem and everyone can go home now. There's going to be someone who says, but I'm not very comfortable with that solution. Well, I, this is perfect segue because I did want to say something about uh, Peter van Invagen's distinction between a theodicy and a defense. Um, but before I get to that distinction, let me say, um, I think that the, 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 the model of time of this kind of what I call the scene changing theory of time where God has the ability to change the past multiple takes this divine proofreader or, or, or Mike, uh, Mike Lee style director. I think this model is compatible with a number of different um, um, ways in which you might seek to calibrate some of these values you're talking about right so it's, it's not not inevitable that god will cut everything out that that's bad right um and, I, and like you said it's, it might be very difficult for us to find the calibration that's right and there might not be a clear answer and it might not be it might be impossible to find consensus on that but but the theory at least gives uh, the creator some leeway here right he doesn't have to censor everything uh the other thing is Though I take the point that Jason raised about feeling attacked, so to speak, by a censoring God, um, there, there still is a robust sense. I want to say, it, it, again, repeating a, a, 
an answer I gave to one of Jason's questions earlier. I think there's still a robust sense in which the end product is one in which humans have freedom, so to speak, unpredictable freedom, right? The, the, the history, you know, so, so, so yes, something's been taken away from you, I get that, but like how much? It's not an easy question to answer. Okay, how does this all relate to the distinction I wanted to show you between uh, a theodic or raise between a, a, a theodicy and a defense? A theodicy, according to uh, Peter van Inwagen, is a, a fully fledged attempt to explain exactly why, in actual fact, an omnipotent, an omnibenevolent, an omniscient God has allowed evil to occur. And if you think you know why, and you can say why, you're offering a theodicy. And despite this entire conversation we've had, which has been tremendous fun, I don't really think I have a theodicy because I, I, I take it to be uh, uh, um, audacious in the extreme uh, to claim to know. <laughs> you know, even if even if I even if I'm very confident in in my my theism that there is such a God, to claim to know why He allows such horrific things to occur, I think is um, problematically audacious for both epistemic and moral reasons. Uh, what I'm offering is what Van Van Inwagen calls a defense, and the defense is like this: for all we know, this could be why God is allowing evil, and if the for all we know is true. That's to say, yeah, for all we know, it could be this, right? You, you, you have fundamentally undermined the problem of evil without offering a theodicy. You're saying, I don't know why God allows such terrible things, but he, here's a perfectly good reason why he might. And if you've got a perfectly good reason why he might, you've already undermined the sense in which the problem of evil is a proof against the existence of God because you've shown how there's a possible world in which a good God allows these sorts of evils to occur. So I do not claim to know that there will be multiple takes of this history. I just claim that for all we know, it might be true. And since it might be true, the problem of evil isn't in and of itself a reason to reject the truth of theism. Um, it still counts as counter evidence of theism, but I, I just don't think it, the existence of evil, but I don't think it um, it, it, it can raise to, to, to the status of a logical proof against theism. Well, Sam, this has been lots and lots of fun. Uh, I, uh, I hope that we've given you a couple of weird and wonderful- oh, it's been brilliant, fabulous cases. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Yeah, I, if, if I ever get to write some some more on this topic, I'll be citing uh, a number of your thought experiments by name. <laughs> yeah.